everyone. Welcome to The Sword and Laser, episode number 160. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Look behind you. Ah, oh, oh God. Tom is in the same room with me. That's terrifying. <laughs> I, I think this happened once before, maybe. <laughs> I, I think you could be right. But maybe it was at a convention. I don't know if you've ever. Oh no, you're right. With conventions, we've been. But there was one time in the early, early days where I went to your house and we recorded. Okay. Like episode six. (laughs) (laughs) Dom, your mic is really hot. I just want to warn you. Um, so could you just like keep it down a little bit? That's okay. That'd be great. My mic uh, appreciates the compliment. You don't have a nice um sock on your mic to to prevent. Your hotness. Do you have it? Should I just take no? Off I don't have one anything. Of my You're socks? fine. Just don't yell. Just that's all I'm saying. I'm not yelling. <laughs> that peaked out a little bit. It's fine. I have levelator. I can make this all work later. We'll fix it. But in anyway, post. we'll fix it in post. This is the science fiction fantasy show and book club where we talk about the latest book picks of the month, discuss what you guys are talking over talking about over on Goodreads.com, and. Uh, all sorts of other stuff. Man, we are just uh, finished up. We, we we just wrapped season two of Sword and Laser Video. Very, very good and exciting. Yeah, we are really, really excited to bring that to you guys. Um, so sorry if our brains are a little fried. It's been, we've been getting up at like 5 a.m. for the past three days and shooting for like 12 hours. And it's been phenomenal. And all the authors we had in the show were just absolutely amazeballs. Um, so I can't wait. I can't wait for the shows to start rolling out. There's a trailer uh, with a special guest. If you haven't seen seen it yet go to swordandlaser.com and check it out uh we also put a little behind the scenes video together for the kickstarter backers so if you backed the kickstarter you should have access to that and then uh, after a little while we'll make it available for everybody so you can yeah. get a little peek yeah but all of our videos are over at youtube.com slash the sword and laser the just one word the sword, sword and laser and if you go to sword and laser it will also be us but you won't really find much there yeah bob salvatore so. and adam christopher are hanging out. that's about it <laughs> someday i will export those videos and Yes. put them on our on our actual page now uh, but hey let's jump into the podcast um so what are we drinking not much sparkling water flat water for me you know not even sparkling you want to know why because we are going to a meetup after this right. here in San Francisco um, <laughs> over at Borderlands Books uh, with about 30 of you kids. And um, I'm going to have a cocktail afterwards, so I want to save it. I'm saving it for after the show. Saving yourself for after show. Exactly. Me too. So yeah, so being good now, but let's jump right into the quick burns. It's Wurtzona Palooza. In the, quick, in the quick burns this week. I just noticed the very first three are all via the word So thank zone. you, Adam, for content. <laughs> yes, thank you for being our, our news source. Is it, the first one is actually him pointing to Ionine's uh, exclusive on Half a King by Joe Abercrombie. They've got the new cover art up there. Uh, it's coming July 8th in the United States on Delray and around the same time in the UK on HarperCollins. And Ionine even has a little bit of an excerpt over there as well. Yeah, I haven't read the excerpt yet, um, but the cover looks fantastic. And I'm, I'm really interested by the fact that this is his more YA style novel. Um, so I'm assuming it's going to be a little less intense than perhaps, you know, the the Blade itself or Red Country or, or basically any book starring Anything Logan Ninefingers, yeah. um, pretty much. So uh, it might be a book you can actually read with your kids. It's just dark, not grim dark. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so that looks that looks really fun. I can't Mildly wait to pick that one up. Dark. And this is, uh, assumably, as Adam says, uh, the American cover and not the UK edition because they're talking about that July 8th release in the U.S. 
Uh, Adam also points out that Richard Morgan has completed The Dark Defiles. That's the concluding volume in the Land Fit for Heroes trilogy. Uh, if you don't remember, that one began with The Steel Remains in 2008 and Cold Commands came out in 2011. It's his longest book he's ever written, 247,000 words, which uh, for comparison puts it pretty close to The Name of the Wind, which is 259,000 words, that one. Oh, so I'm, so I'm confused, though, because then they go on to say, and almost, almost half again the length of Cold Commands. Yeah. So does that mean I, I read that to mean it's half the length of cold commands? It take half of cold commands and then commands add it to the end, and so, that's what that's how big this one is. So wouldn't it just be a f- oh, okay? All right. It's math. It's math. I, I get it. I get it. I'm a little uh, slow in the uptake with that stuff. But this one's coming to the UK on August 21st. We in the US have to wait all the way to October 7th. Those dates might change. Apparently, they're not totally final. Mm-hmm. And Morgan has said his next project will be science fiction. And if, if you don't recall, Altered Carbon, which a uh, yeah. lot of folks in the in the, uh, in the office, <laughs> in the office, in the photo, around the old Goodreads office, uh, are mentioning as one of their favorites. It was one of his uh, big sci-fi books. I've read that, and it's a fantastic novel. So it's good to see him headed back towards sci-fi. Sword and Laser is not actually affiliated with Goodreads in any kind. (laughs) Anyway, um, also an update for Peter F. Hamilton. uh, The Queen of Dreams, the first novel in his new uh, Book of the Realms trilogy, which is also in the YA realm. And now this is interesting and something we actually talked about with a couple of our writers on the show, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, So The Abyss Beyond Dreams is Hamilton's next adult sci-fi novel. Um, So he's coming out with the first in the series called Chronicle of the Fallers, and that's going to be set in the Commonwealth universe, which was the setting for the Commonwealth Saga and Void trilogy. Um, So, oh, wow, a lot of stuff coming out in the near future for Peter F. Hamilton. (laughs) And if we know anything about word count, we know Peter F. Hamilton does not usually write short word counts no, either so he is not messing that's a around. lot of work so this is interesting because um, the young adult thing is the very young adult thing is very interesting because we we talked to several authors uh, over the course of the last few days who said like the next thing they hope to work on would be a young adult series and it got me wondering like is it to reach an earlier audience or is it because young adult books have been so lucrative i think there is an undercurrent of the publishers encouraging this because young adult has been so lucrative. I, I would, I would almost guarantee that, but the authors themselves, you know, they're not just like, Oh, they said, I'm going to make a bunch of money. So I'm going to do young adult. I think a lot of the authors are interested in it because there's so many interesting stories being told there. Some of them were saying, I would like to write a novel that my children could read yeah, uh, because maybe their adult sci-fi is a little too adult for their kids. And others just say, you know, it's, it's not, a genre that gets the respect that it should deserve, and they wanted to help uh, expand that. Yeah, so uh, that's uh, that's cool. I mean, I have enjoyed a lot of young adult novels in the past. You know, as an adult, um, sometimes it's just a, a nicer, not necessarily lighter take no. on on genre fiction at all. Um, but yes, yeah, sometimes I don't even notice that it's actually a YA novel. When it's done right, I don't think you should. Really. Right, yeah. right. Um, from CNET writer Bonnie Burton. Oh, Bonnie Burton. Yay. <laughs> she has been nailing it over on the she CNET really Crave blog recently. Um, apparently, uh, Gillian Anderson, of course, most of you know her as uh, Dana Scully from, from The X-Files, is co-writing a new book with uh, another author named Jeff Rovin. Um, about, it, it's called The Earth and Saga, and it's the the first book is called A Vision of Fire, and it's about a child psychiatrist who kind of goes to help a, a young woman and realizes that there's a lot more to this young woman than she initially expected. Um, but what's interesting is that uh, Gillian Anderson kind of commented that she wanted to write a book that 
was the protagonist was a woman of her age um, that she could kind of relate to in a lot of ways because she feels like there's not a lot of female protagonists, you know, in their 40s, in their mid to late 40s. I hope I'm getting her age range correct at this point. I hope I'm not aging her too much. Um, but I thought that was pretty interesting. I'm, I'm curious why she's co-writing it, though. Maybe she's just a busy lady. Well, it's probably one of those things where she is not necessarily a trained writer. She doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot of experience, but she's got a good story. Right. And so the publisher says, great, yeah, we'd love to do this, but you'll need somebody that that is an experienced writer to make sure you get all the mechanics right and, and smooth it out so that she doesn't have to learn t- to become an author mm-hmm. before they can put it out. And interestingly as well, um, the, the co-author Jeff Rovin um, worked in the Tom Clancy universe. Um, he he wrote the uh, Tom Clancy's Op Center book series. I still think it's kind of interesting how Tom Clancy has this whole like series of stuff with his name on it. Well, I mean he's he's no he's no is he is he, no longer he's with no us, longer correct. with us. Um, also, you got Gillian Anderson's uh, age range right. I got it right. Yeah, oh, I good. Did. Okay, that sounded. I, I, I thought that sounded about right. Um, I always find it interesting that how how. There's so many different things under the Tom Clancy umbrella. Yeah, Video he's, become, games, a universe. Rainbow Six he's Vegas. become a universe, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's not just a guy. He has transcended life. Transcended life and transcended even his own his own world that he built. So that's, An- that's pretty interesting. Another author who did that was Philip K. Dick mm-hmm. uh, in more ways than one. And the Philip K. Dick Awards are awarded every year for a distinguished work of science fiction published in paperback original form in the United States because Philip K. Dick's novels throughout the 50s and 60s were all straight to paperback. If there was a hardback edition, it was often only a sci-fi book club edition, not an actual first edition. I was wondering about that. Um, I couldn't figure out why it was paperback only, and, and then I asked Tom, and Tom answered me. And yeah, that I was gave her answer. that answer right that there. Was, that cool was, story. Hopefully that's the right answer. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but a yeah, lot of good stuff. Yeah, A Calculated Life by Anne Charnock, The Mad Scientist Daughter by Cassandra Rose Clark, Self-Referenced Engine uh, by Toe and Joe. Toe and Joe, The Self-Reference Engine by Toe and Joe. And Terry Gallagher, Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie, which we read, mm-hmm. uh, Life on the Preservation by by the Preservation. I read that right by Jack Skillingstead, Solaris Rising Two, the new Solaris book of science fiction, edited by Ian Waits, and Countdown City by Ben H. Winters. Yeah, these all these covers look phenomenal. I mean, that's the one thing I really noticed is how cool all these covers are. Like Countdown City looks really neat, and yeah. so does Life on the on the res- uh, Preservation. Oh, I-, I almost got me. I on the preservation. Said, I almost said life on the reservation. Yeah. A calculated life, really angular style there mm-hmm. with almost like like you're Geometric. seeing pieces of, of letters yeah. superimposed. You're right. Good covers. Uh, so thanks to John DiNardo over at SF Signal for posting those all up. Absolutely. We have another DiNardo later in the show. Uh, but before we do that, <laughs> let's jump into like the Picasso. calendar. Yeah. We got another DiNardo coming up. Same DiNardo, just a different article and on a different blog. Um, so coming up, let's see, on January 21st, we have Star Wars Mall Lockdown by Joe Schreiber. We have uh, Halo Moral Dictata by Karen Travis. Mortal, not mortal. Damn it. <laughs> January 28th is Hangwire by Adam Christopher, which we got Ooh. to have the sneak peek cover art of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thanks, Adam, for that. And congratulations on the launch. Dominion by CJ Sansom comes out January 28th as well. A Darkling Sea by James Cambius is out that day. And Shadow Ops Breach Zone by the one and only Mike Cole. The fantastic Mike Cole. Should I read it out through February 4th? Yeah, go ahead. All right, we've got Dreamwalker by C.S. Friedman. Stolen Crown, a novel of Mythgar by Dennis L. McKiernan. The Flight of the Silvers by Daniel Price. 
V.S. Day, a novel of alternate history by Alan Steele, Like a Mighty Army, Safehold by David Weber, The Reaver, The Sundering, Book 4 by Richard Lee Byers, and Three Princes by Ramona Wheeler. All coming out within the next two weeks. Yes. Actually, I think they reached out to me about The Reaver, um, the publicist for that book. So maybe we can get Richard Lee Byers on the show as well. That'd we, be cool. We've talked a lot about this. Uh, the Sundering, the Sundering is series the, is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that would be that might be a make for a cool interview if you guys are interested out there. And hey, wanted to let you guys know about the sponsor for today's show. It is our dear friends at audible.com. Uh, we want to thank Audible for its support of Sword and Laser. They're the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks, and we have a special offer exclusively for our listeners coming right up. They have 150,000 downloadable titles, you know, virtually every genre you can possibly imagine. And if you want to listen to a book, Audible has it. You can listen to audiobooks anytime, anywhere on your iPhone, your iPad, your Mac, your PC, on your Kindle, you know, Pretty much any time you, you are hands-free. That's kind of how I do it. Yeah, when I'm, I don't have hands. When, when I don't have hands, when I'm driving, <laughs> when I'm doing happens. dishes, when I'm doing chores, grocery shopping, whatever it is. Walking I'm, the I'm, dog. Listen, water, water the dog. You got to water that dog. Keep Walking, it going. Walking, not watering. Oh. Or though, maybe watering. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so here's the best part. So Audible is offering Sword and Laser listeners a free audiobook along with a 30-day trial. Just head over to audiblepodcast.com slash swordlaser. Swordlaser, new code. This is different. It is a new code. I know you're very used to the old one, but now it's swordlaser to take advantage of the special offer. And by doing so, you get the chance to try out a great service and you, of course, support our show, which we always super appreciate. Uh, got a book pick recommendation, Tom? Well, um, you'll find out later why, but Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin is available on audiobook. I just picked it up this morning with my Audible credit. Did you? I did. Yes, and once again, you can get a free audiobook download of your choice and a free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash swordlaser. Yeah, one any, word. Any any book, you can get any one credit book uh, with that code, so to use it. And if you are already a member, give it to someone else. Pay Audible Podcast.com slash swordlaser. Well, should we jump into TV, movies, and video games? Why don't we? Why don't we? All right. So uh, as many of you out there know, I am a fan of the Outlander series. So actually, that's kind of a lie because I've only read the very first one. I guess I should get to... You're a fan of the first one. I'm a fan of the first book. I haven't had a chance, as you know. I've got other books that I have to get through every month. Um, But the first Outlander book by uh, Diana Gabaldon is is pretty fantastic, in my opinion. It's pretty epic. And uh, the new TV show is coming out on Stars very soon. And they put out the first trailer, and there's a lot of epic battles, some time travel, some sexy times. A little bit of sexy times. A little bit of sexy little times. Touch that, yeah. But it looks pretty cool. And Ronald D. Moore is acting as showrunner. Oh, so well, I'm feeling fairly confident up, about that. Yeah. As long, well, he doesn't always end things well. He doesn't well, always end things well, but the ending's but the already written for always, him. Yeah, ex- well. Even when they're written for him, that's true. All yeah. right, well, you're right. He's not the writer, <laughs> uh, but uh, but he always has good starts. So I'm looking. The, the trailer looks great. Another trailer looks great is Game of Thrones season four trailer, mm-hmm. uh, which came out, giving us a nice overview of all the stories you're going to see on HBO's show coming this spring. I think it's April when it starts. Yeah. And you, if you've read the books, you're you're gonna know. You're gonna go. Oh, there's the Viper. Oh, there's that. There's that. There's the start of that. Yeah. It's Absolutely. All, it's all. All the big points are there. 
And the aforementioned uh, second John DiNardo article uh, in this week's podcast is from Kirkus, from the Kirkus Book Reviews. Um, and it's an article about uh, these are books that are going to be, that are being adapted into uh, TV shows or film. And uh, the first one he talks about is Divergent by Veronica Roth. Um, you know, the, only, the main reason I am familiar with Veronica Roth and her work, and this is embarrassing, is because she gets tons of tweets where people write at Veronica space Roth, and then so I'm the only one who sees sees it. And so she doesn't get the tweets. So you've got an interesting insight into her life. (laughs) A little bit. Into her fandom. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's the first movie that's coming out. Mm -hmm. March 21st here in the US, uh, the the first movie, Divergent. It's got, uh, oh, what's her name as uh, Kate Winslet. Uh, is in it oh kate winslet's in it yeah okay oh isn't she a bad guy she well i don't know i don't know i haven't read the book i don't know if so her character know. is bad but she or her character looks very imposing oh and shailene uh shailene woodley yeah is also in is it. the main character yeah yeah okay uh then he also talks about wool by hugh howie we got to interview hugh for the upcoming video series and we talked to him a little bit uh about ridley scott getting uh, involved in making Wool into a movie. Yeah, he's going to be the first uh, episode that goes up, by the way. Casting begins early 2014 for the Wool, the movie, um, but they're talking about it as a blockbuster for 2015. Yeah, oh, it's going to be so cool. I can't, I can't wait. wait. I hope there's a premiere, and I hope we get to go. Um, and then the uh, the next one, and this is something I've been uh, actually meaning to pick up, is Beta by Rachel Cohn. And uh, this is cool. They're actually, uh, ABC is turning it in, into a series, and it's about a young girl who's kind of, um, she's like an empty vessel. She's been uh, like bioengineered into like, I, I think into servitude. Yeah. And it's on a tropical island and, and they're basically created as slaves for the people who are living on this on this island paradise uh, for the wealthiest people on the planet. And, um, and, and then she starts having, you know, as sometimes these situations occur, uh, she starts having actual human emotions and feelings that she's not supposed to have. She's defective. And she's not supposed to She's defective, and it reminded me a little bit of um, Cloud Atlas. Ah, it reminded me. What's that? What's that movie with Mila Kunis? Am I or the one with the? I don't know. Yeah, I think it might even be called The Island. Uh, This is supposedly a much deeper story than that and much more about the otherness. Uh, Robots and clones are often that part of it, as John DiNardo points out here. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that as an ABC series as well. So check it out. There's more details at KirkusReviews.com. If you want them, we'll have the link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, as promised, um, actually, I didn't mention it in the beginning of the show, but this is our wrap-up episode for The Einstein Intersection uh, by Samuel R. Delaney, which was Tom's pick, uh, Tom's laser pick for the month and uh yeah this was a um another interesting selection i think that kind of polarized the audience in many ways um but i was very surprised by the book it it felt very modern to me um even though it was written what in the 60s yeah 65 i'm gonna go back to the the show notes for the other day because i have the actual Mm-hmm. The actual dates in there, okay. um, but 1967, it won the Nebula Award, so probably 66 is when he finished it, and got it published. So this was a, um, oh, what was I about to say? I just was about to say something. Well, you totally said you forgot. said you felt it was very modern, even though it was 1967. I did. I, did. I felt it was very modern, um, and it had a lot of a lot of interesting themes in it. And and one thing that kind of kept coming back up as I was discussing this book with people was how you kind of feel like it's going over your head. Like you feel like there's more going on than you are understanding. And I feel as though I need to kind of maybe go back and read it again to fully understand uh, what's going on in the story. But uh, of course, there will be spoilers in the, 
in this discussion. So if you haven't finished this actually fairly short read, um, then just be aware of that fact. But yeah, we can't wrap up a book without talking about the book. So exactly. <laughs> this is one of the ways so of life. The Einstein Intersection in a Nutshell is a story about, um, I would assume, I think I'm correctly assuming that it's an alien species that comes to inhabit the Earth long after the people, our people, have either fled or died off. We're not really 100% positive what happened to the inhabitants of Earth. Um, but over time, these aliens, uh, they start genetically mutating. And maybe that's because they are different genetically from what the Earth is able to provide, or maybe it's because of leftover radiation or or some kind of issue with well, what's there's actually a whole radiation system right. that is is intentionally meant to provide genetic diversity. Oh, right. Okay. And so they are basically evolving constantly. And so no two no two creatures. I don't know what to call them as a people. People. Hum- no two people are, are ever exactly alike. And some of them turn out better than others. They are there's more like more functional humanoids and there's less functional humanoids that are kind of corralled into almost a pen where they live comfortably ish until a cage the cage yeah Yeah. it is called a cage um where they eventually succumb to their deformities and are not able to pass along their genetic material to the next generation but then some people are declared different even though they are functional well we learn later that there is another group another subset um that are called difference and they have developed interesting abilities um so our our protagonist Protagonist Lobi is able to uh, sense the music in people. He's able to hear the music that is kind of bound, it, whether it's like that person's personal song, like something that just is emblematic of emblematic their personality, of them, yeah. yeah, or it's an actual song they have in their head at that moment. Um, he can do he can do those things and then play them back on his machete flute. So a lot of call me maybe. Yeah, a lot of that. A lot of that for Tom. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I have trouble visualizing the machete flute, um, but that is... It's never really described, and that's one of the interesting things about Einstein Intersection. It is very tightly mm-hmm. written. It is about what's happening, not about what it not looks like. Not explaining what happened. Yeah, it doesn't really. explain what happened. It doesn't describe the scene very much. It just moves you from point to point. And yeah, the, you're just supposed to assume it's a machete, and he can play also, music on it. And it's not even till very near the end of the book, I think, that you notice that you actually learn that it has holes mm-hmm. and it's blown into to, to make the music. I always kind of pictured it early on that he was like playing it like a guitar or something. Oh, OK. But they called it his flute. I thought. Mm. But anyway, um, and so another interesting factor is that these people uh, take cultural significance from stuff we left behind. Um, So they're able to pick up remnants of our culture and society and kind of form those into... I don't know who that is. There's Samuel Delaney calling now. That is Samuel Delaney calling right now. Hopefully the husband will pick that one up. I think what Delaney is doing is, is saying that when we in the Renaissance came came back to Greek and Roman mythology, we sort of took it as a jumble, right? Mm-hmm. And we sort of remade it. And I don't think people from Rome would have understood, like, why are you putting that there along with that? That's in the wrong timeline. Right, right. And so he's saying, <laughs> let's, this all wrong. let's take all of it from Rome all the way through the 60s musical court culture and just mix that all up because that's what would happen if these people came to an abandoned earth. They wouldn't necessarily know where it all fit together. Right. So it's a big jumble. And what was the Minotaur doing in that bunker? In that, like, why was that actually a minotaur? I would assume that that was just their name for whatever that piece of technology was. No, it was a it was a person. It was a creature. 
Right, but I, was it a creature? Was it a robot? Well, he killed it. Yeah. And there was blood and stuff. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure he killed it. Oil. Creature. I don't think so. I, I think Coolant. that's a stretch. That might uh, be a stretch. There, it, there's a little bit of a psychedelic factor to, to this Definitely. novel, too. And that, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about is it really reminded me of a little bit of a Philip K. Dick novel mm-hmm. and a little bit of that kind of experimental novel you read when you're in college that gets assigned to you in your English course uh, <laughs> because it's full of illusions. Like the Einstein intersection. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's full of allusions to things in mythology and it's got deep thoughts and, and it's it's a thick book to to pull meaning out of. And some people are not going to like that. They just want to be told a story. And right. this, this has got a meta story. Um, there was a lot of great discussion that was happening on the, on the forums and... But there was one interesting thing that um, it was Tamahome that Tamahome posted. It was it's an article over on yellowandcreased.wordpress.com. That's yellowandcreased.wordpress.com, and it's a kind of a review slash rundown of a lot of the themes um, inside of the Einstein intersection. And the the section that I thought was most interesting was um, about the uh, about the otherness. Uh, the author goes on to say, but the novel's macro scale focus is difference, playing out in a future of mutant aliens possessing psionic powers and more, struggling to keep the sense of normalcy left to them by their human precursors. You can read it as an allegory for nonconformity, perhaps, or the more obvious connotations it has for gender or ethnicity or sexuality. Delaney self-identified as gay. In any case, it deals with the other, in fact, a whole world of others, clinging to a concept of normalcy and the self-idealized by a foregone and vanished mankind. There's a chill irony about a race of aliens taking on human husks, clinging to our faded memories, then trying to retain our aesthetic ideals of form. As they mutate and, ide- and diversify, so does their concept of, quote, functional normalcy. Yeah, and there's a really good parallel once you know about Delaney's background, which is why we wanted to set this up for you in the last kickoff episode, uh, that you can see at work here where he's saying, well, there's low and there's law, but there's also lay. And we'll get to that in a second, too. There's there's differences. There's others. And wait a minute. Maybe we're all others. Maybe there really isn't any normalcy. Yeah, exactly. Um, Very, very good point. Um, So speaking of pronouns, uh, there was a thread started by Rob in the forums called Pronouny Things. And he goes on to say, what do you guys think of the weird pronoun slash title things that are applied to or taken away from the characters? Lo, la, le, and such. I'm not far enough to have any kind of coherent thought about this playing around, but I thought I'd bring it up and see if anyone had interesting thoughts. It seems like a neat continuity with Ancillary Justice to have another book that plays around with gender, identity, and language stuff. Wow. I didn't even think about that once, and that is absolutely true. Wow, that is really lame of me that I did not come to that conclusion. Well, and I think what he's trying <sighs> to do is say, uh, well, I'm not going to explain all of this because to them, it's just natural. Yeah. And he want, he kind of wants to jumpstart your brain into thinking of it as natural and not paying a lot of attention to yeah, it. Yeah, it actually did not it did not jump out at me as being weird or odd in any way, actually. Oh, I mean, so it worked. They, they, it, yeah, I mean, <laughs> especially respect. if you speak a, like a, kind of like a foreign language, like a, the pronouns could be taken from Italian, uh, people else, elsewhere in the thread go on to say, sure. um, you know, there's a masculine, a feminine, and then there's almost like the androgynous pronoun. Um, and that's what the lay ends up being. And I think it, it worked really perfectly. Um, I did find it interesting that it was very difficult to tell on site what the proper pronoun to use was. Um, so, like, Lobie had some difficulty and some some issues kind of identif- gender identifying some of the other characters in the book at first, which led to some weird situations. Very ancillary justice of him. Yes. There was actually a great note. Um, oh, where was it? <sighs> 
Oh, I think it's for a different thread. But anyway, yeah, it was it was very ancillary justice. I mean, that that theme rang almost exactly true between those two books, which was how embarrassing it is to get the pronoun wrong. Yeah. I yeah. thought that was that was a, that's a cool parallel. You're right. Now, now that I think about that, having not realized that at the time of reading, <laughs> strangely, um, yeah, that's a, that was a great point. Uh, thanks, Rob, for bringing that up. Brian posted ahead. about the role of music. Uh, he says Lolobi's difference is that he, you know, can pick up that telepathic radio we were talking about before, and it plays a central role in the outcome. Now they started going into the fact that. Green Eye is apparently life, kid death, obviously death, uh, and that therefore a lobby is music. And Brian was suggesting that maybe Delaney was trying to say music should be put on a pedestal or music is more important than life or death. A few other people said, well, they didn't really think that was the point, especially because he says music is order. And I found that quote in the book. Rob uh, also found it for you. Kid death can control, but he cannot create which is why he needs Green Eye. He can control, but he cannot order, and that is why he needs you. So it's not as simple as life and death. It's about control and creation. And then music, which anybody who knows the mathematics side of music knows that music is order. It's it's ordering up notes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's providing order in a mathematical way. So it's about control, creation, and order. And Lobi is the order side of that. Um, this is another point, which is not related to that point at all, but Carter says, not sure where else to put this, but this seems as good a place as any. It's funny to hear them referencing the Beatles. We read it from a place of knowing the full arc of the Beatles, we ourselves, and we assumably they are also knowing it from a full arc of the Beatles within the fictional storyline. That's my own aside there. Yet Delaney is writing in 1965-1966. It is a very good chance that most the most recent album that Delaney had heard was Rubber Soul. No revolver, no Sergeant Peppers. So does that matter in the course of the story? Probably not, but I still think it's cool. It's really interesting, Carter. I would like to go look at a timeline closer and find out like what points he was writing what what parts because you're right 65 66 is the is the region even mm -hmm. it was published in 67 he might have got some exposure to revolver but definitely not sergeant peppers yeah and definitely not you know the beatles of the maharaja and all of that <laughs> is not going to have as big of an impact on that that's really interesting so i wonder how that would have if that would have informed the text in any kind of way had more of the Beatles catalog been available to Delaney at the time. Or, or, or we always think of the Beatles as this self-contained, well, they were the Beatles through the sixties and mm -hmm. then, you know, they had their impact. Uh, but Delaney obviously thought, well, they've, they've already had their impact and before even what we consider to be their most impactful albums. Yeah, that's very true. And then uh, we have a thread from Andrew about knowing the genre. He says, how far do you think that knowing this is a science fiction novel has affected your reading? I felt I might have gained something from not knowing as a start could have been in a fantasy tribal society. And the gradual gradual revelation that it was set in Earth's future would have made a different reading experience. Related to that, is there any point these days in writers trying to disguise the genre they're writing in or create surprises in this way? Given how important genre definitions are in the marketing and selling of books and in how we choose what to read will they ever manage to surprise readers um you know funny talking about that early tribal society now i'm seeing this as the other storyline from oh now i'm seeing a reference to another storyline from cloud atlas which is that other future future tribal society mm -hmm. um the Cloud one with Atlas Tom Hanks like, in the yeah, movie. Yeah. It's like smacking me over the head in this right. discussion. Well, that just, I mean, Delaney obviously must must have influenced Cloud Atlas yeah. because Delaney came first. Right. Uh, and Cloud Atlas obviously 
affected by the entire genre mm-hmm. when he's writing because he's trying to imitate different styles throughout. So it, it makes perfect sense. Um, so yeah, the the genre surprise, it, it definitely could have read as a fantasy novel um, if we got through the entire book not knowing that they had come from a different planet. Well, and this is the problem with genre classification, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you say, oh, it's science fiction, uh, it, it, the, the, the shoe never fits perfectly in, in stories that are wide ranging. And this is one of those kinds of stories. And, and I thought that I don't Joe- think it affected negatively no i don't think so but he is talking about that that surprise factor um i think Mm. joe informatico um had a fantastic comment um he starts out some historical context back in the 1960s science fiction was seen as a halfway respectable genre while fantasy was largely dismissed as children's literature and trashy pulp stories lord of the rings had just come out in paperback in the usa and it would take a few more years to really achieve its current lofty status in genre literature Paul Anderson also wrote a couple of seminal works of fantasy books. I actually have a Paul Anderson right yeah, here three worlds on my desk right, right now. Um, blah, blah. Also wrote a couple of seminal works of fantasy back in the 50s and 60s, but they didn't get as much attention as Lord of the Rings or his own sci-fi work. His fantasy legacy would be cemented later as one of the preeminent inspirations for Michael Moorcock's fantasy work and the Dungeons and Dragons game. So yes, at the time, you had a lot of authors who wanted to write fantasy, but didn't want to taint their SF credentials. That's why there are several... There are several books published in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that have a fantasy aesthetic and trappings, but built these on science fiction explanations so they can be labeled as SF, e.g. Einstein Intersection, Jack Vance's Dying Earth books, Anne McCaffrey's early Pern books, Marion Zimmer Bradley's Darkover books, Andre Norton's Witch World, Zelaney's Chronicles of Amber and Lord of Light, and arguably Dune. Uh, fantasy started becoming respectable in the 1970s. Thus, the same stigma doesn't really apply anymore, so really the only reasons you'd conceal one genre in another today are to break outside genre conventions or because of contract restrictions. Yeah, I I don't think Joe is wrong. I think he might be over making the point, though, and I bet there are going to be people respond to that. Uh, science fiction isn't respectable in the 60s. He's not wrong that it is probably has more respect and it has got more momentum than fantasy does at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're both considered pulp still at that at that time and then the other side of it can be that you know just the fact that a good writer writing in a genre wants to tell a story and the genre doesn't determine the story the story is then tried to fit into a genre later on yeah so so these genre classifications mold and change as we go along too i just really liked his explanation i thought his examples were pretty dead on too yeah especially for that time frame um, we've discussed a lot in, in depth about especially Anne McCaffrey's Pern novels and how, you know, they're really a fantastical world, but set in a sci-fi, they're set in a sci-fi yeah. universe, but it, the world itself has very fantastical elements that we would consider to be, you know, tropes of the fantasy genre. Well, fantasy and science fiction are in a continuum. Yeah. Right, you know, swords, lasers, you don't Do always have to choose. Do they balance each other out? You can have a laser sword every Why once in a while. Why are they so intertwined because they are they are they they are not telling our lives they're telling other lives and you'll you'll see science fiction and fantasy range into horror sometime for the same reason Mm -hmm. because again you're telling fantastical stuff not fantasy stuff but things that are not the things that are going to happen when you walk out your door i guess yeah okay that's what i think i buy it all right I buy it. Sold. <laughs> Sold to the highest bidder. Um, all right. Well, moving on to Barrier Sword, which is our feedback from the... Oh, so I guess that's the end of our on intersection 
discussion. Yeah, I like. Anything else you want to say? Sorry, I, t- I tried to move on accidentally. Brief, brief, brief book. Uh, wish mm-hmm. it would have maybe been fleshed out a little more. I liked it short, but I I really enjoyed reading it, and I think it gives. I think the fact that a lot of people didn't like it is because it doesn't give you all the answers. But that's the reason a lot of people are going to like it. That's why. That's part of the reason I liked it. I just liked. And I did get that sense that it was going over my head, but at the same time, I I said I'm still enjoying it. You know, it's not the the the, the parts that I feel like I'm missing are not detracting from my enjoyment of this story. If I can just kind of let go of wanting to really understand everything that's totally. happening, yeah, I agree like, with that 100. percent You know, all right, they're riding dragons, cool, whatever. Yeah, I didn't know that was in this world. Okay, dragons are everywhere. We have dragons now, cool. Yeah, Earth has dragons. That's fantastic. I'm happy with that. <laughs> All right. So now it is time for Barrier Sword, which is our feedback from the audience. Paul posted about the party scene in classic sci-fi. Uh, he says, I've recently noticed that a lot of classic or even just older science fiction has a trope I wouldn't have thought of before. The party scene. <laughs> the cocktail dinner party scene seems to be repeatedly occurring moment in older sci-fi books from various authors. Clark, Heinlein, Bester, uh, Mm -hmm. Niven, uh, to Mm -hmm. use this scene as an action to move the story forward, a convenient way for characters to meet and new ideas to come up or events to happen. I wasn't alive when most of these were written, so I'm wondering what you guys think about this common usage of an idea. Is this just a convenient plot device that was used repeatedly by many authors at the time, or were these parties just a common thing in that time and it was natural to use them? Yeah, so there's, um, Jeff goes on to say, yep, I definitely remember it in Ringworld. I do as well. Yeah. And I just read Dune. It has a party scene or two. I think Hyperion had one as well. I think I think the second book in the Hyperion, Kantos, has a party at the beginning, if I'm remembering correctly. And they definitely refer back. They have flashbacks to having been at parties yeah. at certain points. But definitely Louis' party is fantastic. Yes. It just goes on forever. Like, it's the best party of all time. <laughs> well, uh, where what was it I was reading? Uh, Great North Road. Uh, there's a whole oh. section. There's whole sections where she's at parties, mm-hmm. and it's not like people don't have parties anymore. But yes, in the '60s and before, the cocktail party was was the trope, right? You have people over to your house, you serve cocktails, you mingle, and you have small talk. Mm-hmm. And those were miniature versions of the upper crust of society. In fact, somebody in this thread has a really good explanation of, of how... Oh, Michelle. Michelle, yeah. Uh, has a really good explanation of how they were trying to... The newly wealthy middle class was trying to emulate the upper class by doing this. I don't think those upper class parties have gone away. They're often fundraisers or charity events, but they're still essentially the same thing, which is rich people getting together and mingling at a cocktail party. It seems like the middle class one has declined, though. Yeah, so let's see. Um, Michelle says uh, Michael Crichton's Andromeda Strain starts off with a dinner party. Heinlein's Number of the Beast has a university faculty party. Um, And then uh, Paul goes on to say Arthur C. Clarke, I guess, was influenced to write the scene in Childhood's End by his real experience with Yuri Geller at a party. So did you you have cocktail parties around you growing up? Me? Um... No. I didn't either. No. But I don't know if that was just my parents just didn't do that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, or if it was on the decline by that, that I've point. I've been more to more cocktail parties as an adult now than I saw my parents doing as a kid. So I think because cocktails are hot again, yeah. it's like a new thing to like invite to people over. To revive the cocktail do, party. Yeah, yeah, like mixology. And being a mixologist. Right. But are they like the fancy 60s style of cocktail party? Only or is it just like a Mad Men premiere party. Yeah, yeah. Then it has to be. But do, again, do you have do you have people coming going around serving? 
No. No. See, no. what we're doing is we're taking the college party and turning it and into a cocktail party. It? Yeah. Okay. It's like DIYing it. Oh, I, now I want to actually like if I well, I'm not rich enough to actually like hire. What are they called? People. Caterers. Yeah, they're called people. Caterers. <laughs> caterers to come. Yeah, yeah. To serve servers or whatnot. Um. So yeah, interesting, interesting point. That's a that's a trope that I don't think I had noticed before at all. All right, well, we got an email today from Rob. I feel like, I wonder if it's the same Rob that we've read two threads from today. Uh, anyway, if Rob, if, if that's you, you're being very prolific. Good on you. Um, he says, on your last podcast, you talked about the controversy of picking a weirder, lesser known title like the Einstein Intersection over something more well-known like Nova. But those weird picks informed by the personal taste of you two are so much more interesting than standard picks that I might come across just by Googling top Delaney novels. The weirder picks you guys do don't always sync up exactly with my tastes, but they're always interesting, and they're often something I never would have had the pleasure of coming across on my own. Um, I I personally am loving the weird beauty of the Einstein intersection, and thought it was a good idea to let you guys know that not everyone hates a decision to sometimes go off the beaten path, Rob. That's good to know. Uh, Thank you. I think that what... What we're trying to do is have div- have diversity of selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, next time, it has it's been a while since we had a vote, like a straight-on vote. So that's what I'm going to do next time. Yeah. But we don't want to do the same thing every time because we want to keep that variety going on. Absolutely. Um, but we are going back in time a little bit for the February pick, um, which I think we should probably talk about now. It's been on the forums for a couple of weeks. I did kind of a an experiment I think it was brought on by by Terp Kristen or one of the other regulars was like, why don't we just do an experiment where we post the pick earlier and see what happens? Will people start talking about it? Will they get burnt out on it? Will they... We used to do that all the time during yeah. the video season one because we were recording so right, far ahead right. of time. So it's not as it's not as like like we've never it's not done like it. we just chose to stop. I think Terp Kristen just was impatient to know what the next pick was going to be. So the next pick <laughs> is a withered, a, a withered, a withered, a withered, a wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin, um, and that is up there on the forums already. So if you want to start talking about that, there should be a discussion group. For no, that as well. you have to wait. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already finished it. Um, and so I have lots of things to say about that story. Well, aren't you special? And there's I actually a great IO9 thread that was started last week about why uh, that series um, is still important to read. Because a lot of people were saying that there are better fantasy series, there's more modern fantasy series, you know, maybe the themes aren't as relevant, or maybe they're a little dated at this point. Um, But there's a great IO9 thread that kind of discusses why these particular books are still important for your base knowledge of fantasy. If you are a fantasy fan, you should still pick them up. Well, and it's an interesting parallel with Einstein intersection, uh, for just that reason, which is, you know, people have different opinions on this in Goodreads, but is it still relevant mm-hmm. to today or is it timeless, you know? Yeah. And that's, it, it'll be interesting to see how Ursula K. Le Guin's story compares to Delaney's. Yep. So it is a withered, oh my God. I it can't is a say withered, withered Earthsea. It's so withered. Um, a Wizard of Earthsea, which is book number one in the Earthsea cycle. Uh, so please, yeah, check it out. See if you guys like it. Uh, we are going to start reading it on the first of this month officially. And if you're at the uh, book club event tonight, we're going to have copies for you to pick up there over at Borderlands Books. Yay! Yay! Thanks, that, Borderlands. That is a podcast. Um, 
That is a podcast. If you want to check out more cool podcasts, uh, we have tons over on the network at boingboing.net. Uh, if you head over to boingboing.net slash category slash podcasts, uh, there is some amazing stuff up there. Uh, the latest is Apps for Kids, number 55. And uh, Mark Fraunfelder is taking a look at Badland. Um, he says, in this episode, we reviewed a side-scrolling action-adventure game with fun physics called Badland. And he does that show uh, with his 10-year-old daughter, Jane. So if you are a parent, and if you want to find some cool apps for your kids, uh, check out this one. It looks pretty science fictional and fantas- fantastical, actually, nice. if you, if you're, if you want to know. Um, so that looks like a lot of fun. And if you want to get in touch with us, the email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. The website is swordandlaser.com. Make sure you head over and watch the teaser trailer for season two. I really want you guys to watch that and get excited about all the amazing authors we have on the next season. Um, all of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com. And if you want to call and leave us a voicemail, the phone number is 415-7-SWORD-6. We will see you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Program so good, it's like you're there. 